0: Sanjoy Sanyal and the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique clean tech consulting firm. Our New Ventures podcast series brings to you conversations with thinkers and practitioners in the area of environmental innovation. Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. We have as our guest today, Kiran Prira, who is the author of the book Sand Stories. She's also the founder of sandstories.org. Welcome to the podcast, Kiran. Our guest for today also includes Rajiv Kosla, who is the founder of Bitnify, a technology and management consulting and execution firm. Welcome, Rajiv. Thank you, Sanjay. You know, one of the things that you say in the book is that sand is in everything, right? Mm. But uh, obviously, uh, one major component of the use of sand is in the construction industry, right? Could you frame the scope of the problem, Absolutely. the overuse of sand in the construction industry. Absolutely.
1: So the construction industry is deemed to be the world's biggest consumer of sand. Um, um, the UNEP estimates that we currently use about 50 billion tons a year, and that translates 18 um, kilos per person per day. There's no other resource that's used in such volumes, not even fossil fuels. We're talking about a resource that is uh, more than steel, more than you know um, fossil fuels, more than bio-based biomass, more than anything you can think about. So just to help us understand the kind of scale, I'm going to quote research by the Queensland University's Sustainable Minerals Institute. So Professor Daniel Franks, he uh, did some recent research and he talks about how, If you look at the amount of gold that has been produced in all of history, it would fill three Olympic-sized swimming pools. But if you look at the amount of sand and gravel that we are extracting every year from our natural uh, systems, it would not fill even 10 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. So that's the kind of scale that we're talking about. Absolutely mind-numbing. It's hard to wrap your head around the volume of material that we are extracting from our ecosystems. The problem um, lies in the fact that sand and gravel are not renewable resources in human timescales. They are renewed, but over ge- geological timescales. So as far as policy are concerned, these are non-renewable resources and they need to be treated as finite resources. What complicates the matter is that not every kind of sand is suitable for use in every use. So for example, desert sand is not often used in construction because the grains are shaped by wind rather than by water. This makes the grains too rounded. And so they don't offer concrete um, as much structural strength and uh, cohesion as grains shaped by water. This means that we are extracting sand and gravel from places that are ultimately limited. They might have a large stock, but as the UNEP report explains, um, if you think about it in terms of a bank account, you know, recent research has found that in the 20th century, we have seen a 23 fold increase in the use of natural resources extracted for our building environment. So if you think if, in terms of a bank account and we start spending uh, but you know, if we increase our expenditure by 23 fold, it's not going to last very long, is it?
0: Right, and not, not everybody understands the humongous use of sand in, in construction industry. The, the, and, the, and the fact that, you know, as you so very nicely put it, that it's not renewable in a human timescale. It is renewable only in a geological uh, uh, timescale. Uh, uh, in the construction industry, where is sand used for?
1: Primarily in
0: concrete,
1: uh, where concrete um, so concrete contains about 60 to 75 percent sand and gravel. And depending on the diff- kind of concrete and depending on the application, the and the country, uh, it's like recipes, right? Like re- recipes are different. You might have the same dish, but the recipes are slightly different in different countries. So it's the same for concrete, or at least that's the way I like to think about it because it makes it more accessible for me. Either way, so concrete is a, is a dominant user, but also uh, the construction industry needs to think about glass. Glass, for example, when you talk about glass panels that, that go on... Um, building facades, you know, any business district that you talk about today has high rise buildings that with glass facades. Now this glass, um, flat glass, contains about 70% silica sand. So what's currently happening is that we are extracting these, uh, this massive volume of resources from our natural resources. We are building things. And at the end of life, when either the market needs change or we decide this building is not good enough or we want to build a better you know, building that's, that's more climate-friendly, things like that, we're tearing things down and sending stuff to the landfill. And that's a huge waste of resources. And that's what we need to address.
0: Absolutely. So uh, just to help uh, our uh, listeners understand this, sand is used in making of concrete, you know, Concrete is, you know, in fact, I just have to write an equation. It is cement plus sand, uh, plus you know, a few other things. And, but, and sand is also used in glass, but isn't sand also used in the manufacturing of cement itself?
1: Yes, absolutely. Especially when the uh, clay is, does not have enough uh, silica content. That's when sand is used. Um, so a- apart from that, Sand is also used in um, pigments that are used in paints and plastics, um, roofing granules, roof membranes that are used in roofing. Uh, all these contain uh, pigments that are extracted from sand. They can be extracted from rock, but it's more profitable to extract them from heavy mineral sands. And that's the problem because these heavy mineral sands come from coastal areas which are going to face an incredible challenge with the sea level rise and climate change and things like that so we really have to take all these factors into account
0: right so sand is used in in the paint uh, that you know sort of you put on the building inside and outside it is used in, in the cement itself it is used as a mixture for the cement to make concrete and is used in the glass so it's really an important component of uh, the construction industry which is why this top conversation is so very important. Now, just stepping away from the use of sand, we also know, I mean, climate professionals like me are also concerned that, you know, the construction industry is a huge emitter of uh, carbon, uh, and carbon dioxide. So, uh, you know, depending on what you look at, you know, Bill Gates, for example, in his last, in his latest book has said that the, uh, you know, the what he calls the, you know, the material things, which of course, includes construction industry but also includes things like plastics you know is about 31% of the total carbon that is there that we have to suck out of the atmosphere the solutions that you talk about in the book do they sort of target both the emissions angle and the sand angle or are these two different topics
1: it depends <clears throat> on several on several factors it depends um, let me give you an example um in colder climates for example there's a great push towards um insulating buildings right so we're talking about triple glazed um, glass and things like that for for buildings if we don't address the underlying system of the the way the economy works where we extract material we use it and then we dump it in the landfill uh, implementing triple-laced glass could actually increase the amount of sand that's being extracted from systems, and it could make things worse, right? Uh, so it really depends on, so as as I mentioned in the book, it's really, really important to reduce uh, emissions, but it cannot come at the cost of everything else. There really has to be balance. If you go to the gym, for example, and you exercise just one muscle, it's not going to be very sustainable or Uh, desirable right you have to look at the overall body of the human being it's the same in nature you have to take into account the big picture um, and and try and implement solutions that are as holistic as possible given our current knowledge Um, solutions there are solutions that will reduce uh, drastically reduce um, carbon emissions so there are solutions being explored such as rammed earth construction there are poured earth, people are building in raw earth, for example, and the idea is that if you don't bind up this material in concrete, it makes it more easy to recycle the material and build something new again. As long as you build it, uh, as long as you protect the roof uh, and protect the foundations and you build it with care, there's absolutely, it's absolutely possible to build, build well and to live well and reduce our climate emissions. I
0: hope that answers the question. It does, I mean, it brings up so many interesting points. I think the uh, one point that you bring up and let me show, make sure that I understand this, is that uh, uh, reducing the electricity use in, in, uh, uh, in buildings by things like triple glass, triple glaze, uh, what was what it you said? Triple glaze glass, yes, right? Yes, windows. Yeah. windows. Would actually increase the use of sand. Not Sorry. only
1: sand; it's also it's also fossil fuels. For example, glasses hugely. Uh, you know, it it takes huge amount of fossil fuels to create this glass. Um, I, I see people talking about solutions where they add titanium dioxide to products and claim that this is a green green product. And that's greenwashing because if you don't really go into the life cycle analysis, where titanium dioxide uh, requires huge amount of fossil fuels in order to be made so if you don't consider how these products are made you might be making matters worse so it's important to look at the big picture really really important to look at the big picture
0: right absolutely oh, well, you know you call it uh, going to the gym and thinking of a total body conditioning right you know uh, <laughs> but, but you know the other way to think about it is having a systems approach to uh, these type of uh, this type of thinking. Uh, so maybe uh, you know we're getting into the you know most interesting topic today, which is tell us a little bit about the solutions that work for the construction industry. and I think you know you're basically hinting this towards you know thinking of of a circular economy in the construction industry, right Absolutely. which is go- which is going to be uh, sort of lower emissions and lower the use of sand, right? So, you, and in your book, you talk about a range of these options, right? So maybe tell us for our listeners, you know, what type of solutions are being piloted or used? So, um,
1: I, I found it really interesting to see that uh, people are working on solutions at a variety of different scales. You have individual practices who are doing really exceptional work. Um, and you also have, um, you know, if it's it's now scaling up to cities who are who are, for example, Amsterdam has decided to become 100% circular by 2050, and they have a, they aim to go to halve their use of natural resources by 2030. So that's less than 10 years away, and you're talking about a city that has placed on public record its ambitions to. You know, half the use of all materials that go into building a city, and that's the kind of ambition we need because it's absolutely possible that humans are incredibly creative, and we uh, we can help you reach wider audiences for sure. Um, So, having said that, the kind of solutions that I have seen they range from individual practices, uh, architectural practices who are now looking at uh, employing bio based materials, local materials. Regenerative materials in creating their in designing their buildings, um, so there, there's there's a this is not in the book, but I discovered it a little later. There's one particular practice that has designed a famous opera house in the in the UK, where. Um, You know, the the design uh, calls for the use of oyster shells and instead of limestone, you know, uh, and it calls for use of uh, timber from local uh, trees that that were dying because of disease, but they're converting that into timber and using. So really using regenerative local materials can be a huge solution because that can cut down your carbon footprint quite a bit. But innovation is not just found in places like the UK, it's also found in in developing countries. For example, there's a practice called Made in Earth in Bangalore, who's developing, who's making, um, they are making apartment complexes with Adobe. Uh, absolutely modern, stunning looking apartments from, from at least the concept design that I have seen online. And um, they're looking at building a community college again with local, renewable uh, materials so that's the kind of I, I i'm seeing a lot of traction from young people to address the climate change uh, to climate climate emergency and that's really really important that we take action now
0: so the, i mean from what you're saying at least uh, just making sure that i understand this you're talking about individual practices meaning these are individual architects yes. and ind- individual construction firms right mm-hmm. But in in your book, one of the interesting uh, sort of examples, since you brought up Amsterdam, you talk a lot about this, uh, you know, shall I call it a company or shall I call it a partnership of companies called New Horizon Urban Mining Collecting. I mean, I I thought that was fascinating, right? Yes,
1: I found it fascinating, too,
0: because I love the quote where he says, you know, the
1: Stone Age it did not end because we ran out of stones. <laughs> so, and that kind of uh, really brought it home for me. I, it made me stop and think. And yes, you know, there, there's a, the, it was so interesting to speak. So I, so I think,
0: you know, the interesting thing for me was the way they operated. You know, Absolutely. here's one company, which had a one offering, but it operated as a, as a collective as a partnership. Yes. Our audience will be very keen to understand your insights into this model.
1: Yes. So what really struck me when I spoke to uh, Michel Baas, the founder of that particular collective, was that he started off um, by taking inspiration from the famous architect Thomas Rao, who says that waste is just a material without an identity. So, so for him, he, um, he, he, he tried to make inroads. But what he found was that uh, the construction industry can be quite, um, can be quite conservative. And so, trying to create this whole new industry from scratch uh, didn't seem like a like you know very smart thing to do. W- what he realized is that when he teamed up with existing players in the market with existing uh, you know people who already had major contracts and they were able to add to the services that they offered, um, he found that the uptake was much better, um, so he was able to uh, put together this this collective uh, they deal with everything from risk management to uh, materials to marketing to you know so it's really really interesting to see how they collaborate uh, with each other they did and try not to reinvent um, make the, the circular economy grow faster it's a fantastic example yeah and I think we need to see more of such partnerships yeah. across. But, but
0: let's across, delve into this uh, a little bit more. So, uh, you know, what does this individual company, New do? And what do its partners do? And what is the collective offering they bring to their customers? And who are their customers in the first place? Uh,
1: so their customers range from, they started off, uh, I think one of the biggest examples that I can give you is the Circle uh, project from ABN Amro, which is a, a famous bank, of right? Course. <laughs> and so... Um, AB and Ambro wanted to redesign uh, a particular building, and they just wanted uh, a new meeting space. Um, and so with the help of, of this um, uh, urban mining collective, they've designed a new building that is absolutely fantastic and it, it's, it's, uh, if you put it in current terms, it's quite expensive. It's not the way that, we, that it's not the way uh, we can build going forward. But at the time when it was built, nobody knew what they were talking about. Nobody knew what circular economy is or how it would work. Um, So it was really interesting to see this particular group of companies come together and push the envelope. You had insulation that came from uh, 16,000 pairs of jeans donated by eager employees. They, they they, because reuse and uh, recycling and the circular economy was at the heart of every decision, they decided to opt for wood rather than concrete because the wood can be then reused and concrete less so. Um, <clears throat> they decided to reuse uh, windows from you know buildings, old office buildings that were demolished. Even the fire hose pipes were pre-loved, basically pavement slabs where, uh, came from previous buildings. And every product that they used in this particular building came with its own story, came with its own um, heritage. And they honored this heritage and they honored this, um, you know, where it came from. And what they discovered is that these material putting reuse at the, at prioritizing reuse really helped them make a, Take a stand and, uh, and guide their design. Uh, so this company offers a variety of different services. They have members in the collective who, who can help um, uh, extract unhydrated cement from uh, old concrete. So basically what that means is uh, when you pour concrete, not all of the cement reacts with uh, reacts immediately it takes time for the cement to react and to harden and uh, uh, set so at at the point of demolition there's always some amount of cement within this concrete that hasn't really reacted and is and can be reused until this point in time we always thought that it's impossible to recover cement from uh, old concrete but th- there's a member in this particular group who has you know one several uh, at least two important prizes in in major conferences, uh, showcasing their product, and they show that they are able to do this. And so that's something I found really interesting. They're able to recover um, not just aggregate, um, that's sand and gravel, they're able to recover unhydrated cement, they're able to uh, recover teal, of course, they're able to recover and and reuse fire hose pipes, plastics, paving, stones, um, so really it's about even the nuts and bolts can be reused and, and recycled so yeah
0: right so this sort of goes back to what where you started right you said that uh, that uh, the main thing is challenge that you see in the construction industry that we tear down buildings and we build them new and what we tear down goes straight into the landfill right mm-hmm. so uh, you know this company and it's and its partners are saying that I can take a building part by part, right, insulation, mm-hmm. water pipes, flooring, doors, components of the concrete itself, including cement, and then use that to a new uh, building, you know, is that the uh, sort of uh, collective solution?
1: Yes. What happens, you know, it's the one of the biggest challenges for the circular economy is that our buildings currently are not designed to be disassembled. You know, they are not designed with with the intention of, uh, if you talk about recycling glass, for example. So what this company, this collective does is that they um, understand that these buildings were not built for disassembly. Nonetheless, they take extra care to kind of extract these individual components of a building um, and store them.
0: Right, sort sure, of take the circularity concept a little step further, and that is use of biomaterials, uh, bio right, and you, uh, and you give examples from all over the world.
1: Absolutely, uh, and that's really interesting, right? So looking at um, taking inspiration from nature, I think is a key solution that we will find more and more as we go forward. So there's this company called Biome that has um, that is making um, construction products out of materials that are traditionally part of waste streams. So they're making mysula- um, insulation panels made of mycelium, and they they're going places. The kind of projects that I see them involved in, I really hope and wish that many other companies also you know can can take in, uh, can get inspired and. Um, similarly find financial success as well as social environmental success. Um, there are, there's a company in Rwanda, like I mentioned, it's a German setup, but they are based in, in Rwanda where it, it's it's a win-win for both because you know, a country like Rwanda, for example, imports so much of, of the materials that is used in construction. And if they're able to then replace this construction and build it instead with straw-based panels it's the win-win right it, it saves them it, it saves them so much on <clears throat> charges and uh, also helps them helps farmers uh find a way to reuse material that they would otherwise have thrown away or burnt um and so that's really promising
0: and it is uh, the german company was where well, it was based in and you said it's this is a very interesting case study to talk about it so they
1: they have so they they really worked very closely with huge market players. And um, they also worked very closely with uh, uh, people in, in academic circles so that the the you know so that they could really study and, uh, and prove that the quality of material that they are creating. Could stand up to any any conventional uh, construction product, and could be even better because there there are no volatile organic compounds that are being emitted when these products are used. There there are no you know at the end of the life end of life it can be completely recycled and um, a new board can be created afresh, things like that. Um, So it's they they really took care to to pay attention to every person along the value chain not just the end consumer. And that's important because you have to look at how these products are being made because more often than not, our our current economy externalizes the cost onto societies and onto the the environment. And that's why we are in such a big pickle.
0: Right. And so this company was able to Work with the industry players to bring their solution solution to the yes. market. And of course, you know, ha- take the help of the academic community to kind of, uh, you know, to bring in the necessary R and D on its on its products. Yes, is that what you, what are you trying to say? Great, you know, uh, your book got published. Uh, at least I got it uh, the in the very same week that Mr. Gates published his book, and uh, uh, and one of the terms Mr. Gates uses in his book is. Uh, Term called green premium, right? Uh, which is you know the price, uh, the additional price one has to pay for a green product, uh, than you pay for a conventional product. In which, as you said, externalities are passed on to the onto the society.
1: Um, it's it's quite interesting for me that when I went to these, uh, when I was doing my research and I visited this um, place where they were recycling construction and demolition waste and creating recycled it, basically. People there told me that there's, um, you know, if, if we don't identify sand and gravel as quarried sand, why should we identify this material as recycled sand? Because they felt that there was a stigma attached to it and customers did not want to be singled out, even though they were buying it, um, showcased as they were using uh, recycled sand. That's in, in, the, in, in the UK. So I found that really interesting. What was also interesting is that they said you know when you go to customers expected recycled materials to be cheaper in in the uk there's a very there's a thriving uh, charity sector like so lots of charity shops when you go and buy uh, clothes for example in the in charity shops you don't expect them to be higher priced than the than than new clothes right right so the expectation there is that because it's a recycled product, it will be cheaper. Now, the challenge there is that because we externalize the true cost of materials onto the environment and to societies, we don't really see the true cost of of these products, right? When we're talking about man-made materials, there's cost involved in setting up, there's cost involved in training people, there's cost involved in Whereas in natural materials, nature has done all the work for us, um, and we're not counting accounting for that particular cost. So it can seem like there's this green premium to be paid, or only people who, who can afford to pay this green premium can pay it. But I'd urge you to think about it. There's no economy, there's no business on a dead planet. We are uh, talking about a time where we are in a climate emergency. So the way we talk about these things has to be radically different.
0: This is so so very nice because you know you bring up so many important points. You say first of all that uh, you know the you know the accounting for green premium does not obviously take consideration the w- work nature has done for us to build this product in the first place. Yes. and you, But you also bring up about that that customers are not necessarily rational human beings. Yes. That even uh, even in the United Kingdom, uh, which is you know. Uh, well, obviously, at least under the present administration, has very ambitious climate goals, customers feel a little queasy to use recycled products, right? Yes. And that's something that has to be addressed.
1: Yes. Uh, so it, I found this, so that there, there's this company called uh, Stone Cycling if, uh, from the Netherlands that I've also featured in the book. And it was very interesting to hear the CEO talk. And, and he was saying that when he goes to customers, and he tries to sell sustainability and things like that. He finds that many are really interested in the aesthetics, you know, and how beautiful these products are. Uh, and so it really depends, I guess, on, on the kind of customers that you're talking to. Um, for him, m- making, um, you know, products, his products are slightly more expensive than traditional conventional products. But the problem is that those who are producing traditional bricks, um, people there own the land from which uh, you know this uh, material is being extracted and that's not accounted for right the kind of subsidies that they are getting in in that sense Uh, whereas for him he has to start everything from scratch so there is definitely cost involved there that 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 when we're talking about we take nature for granted basically and we have to account for that kind of um, those kind of expectations
2: Kiran, I really like the way you've described the magnitude of the problem. When you say 18 kilos per person per day, I think it's it's a very, very, it's a very simple statement to understand, but it shows how deep the problem is there. Uh, You also mentioned a lot of things right now. Mm -hmm. Now, given all this, we are living in an emergency for the environment right now. How do you find alternate products coming in, in an industry which is risk averse, which requires highest qualities of safety, uh, quality standards, the costing, the safety has to be very high, mm. and it has to be on a large scale as well. Uh, it cannot be on an experimental stage considering that the, the requirement is it's, it's about 18 kilos of sand being consumed per person per day. So what are the challenges that alternate construction products will find in getting quality standards accepted? Are the testing codes different? How does this kind of catch up in the industry?
1: So I think we are on the, we are on the right track. Um, but we need to pick up pace. I mentioned Zurich, which is now building. So in 2002, Zurich um, designed uh, um, a school using uh, 80%, I think it was, recycled concrete. Thereafter, they found by 2005, they made it mandatory for all public buildings to use recycled concrete. In 2015, they added, added another component, which is saying that people, all like public buildings have to use low carbon cement. Um, and so now you find examples where people are building buildings with 95% recycled concrete, 98% recycled concrete. That's the kind of scale, you know, that's, that's what's possible. So 20% is great, but it's not nearly enough. And we have to really scale up. So I think cre- raising awareness um, of the possibilities is a is first step.
2: Uh, so what you're saying is that the construction companies, the people who make these products and the government agencies need to work in a very strong collaboration and raise the 20% upwards. Absolutely. And how do you see, I mean, let's say in a country like India, how do you see what will be the key challenges in a country like India to take this from 20% to a 40% or a 50%?
1: You know, one of the biggest challenges I think that India faces is a lack of data. Um, You don't find reliable data that you can, that, so there's no, in the public domain, it's very hard to find how much sand and gravel is required. Where is it coming from? How much are we extracting at the moment? How much do we ultimately need? These are fundamental questions, right? Without knowing the, the kind of the amount we need, where we're going, how, how can individual businesses or I- industries plan alternatives? So finding, uh, keeping track of this data, I think is really uh, crucial. So there's some really interesting research being done between the government of Norway is is working with um, with India in order to um, you know treat and. Uh, recycle construction and demolition waste. So it's really interesting. They haven't yet published stuff. So I don't want to say anything before they have published uh, stuff widely. But I think we will see interesting uh, developments going forward. Uh, keeping track of data is important. Tran- increasing transparency about that data is equally important. So I think it's. Um, I'm seeing examples of, um, of things like this happening slowly. For example, two days ago, I came across this company called Structure. I think um, I'm scheduled to talk with the CEO. It's it's uh, it's been set up by a young woman who who uh, studied civil engineering and then worked in in the states for some time. And now she has developed a, she built a hospital within within a few days, right? A COVID a hospital for COVID patients and things like that. Uh, She builds panels using straw, similar to what I was mentioning, the the company in Rwanda. So this is a similar product that she's building for the Indian market. And she has won awards where, you know, under 30 uh, awards. I I can, but I find it fascinating to see examples like this. I, I think it's a slow process. And what we need to do is really look for uh, and and pay attention to and amplify their voices. And that's how I think they can uh, f- find more traction and, and, and reach newer audiences.
2: I think that's a lovely example you've given. Taking a cue from this, since you mentioned about COVID, uh, today's paper mentioned, and we've been reading about it, there may be a migration to tier two, tier three cities. Mm. In fact, today's paper says that most of the home loans are coming in from tier three, tier four cities now do you therefore see a construction industry moving to a smaller city and therefore an opportunity to kind of rebuild or reshape the construction industry
1: so prior to the pandemic the world was in course to build a new york city a month right for for the next 40 years um insane kind of statistics this is um the traditional way of doing things, and and, and yes, the you I, I do find other experts talking about how construction is now moving to smaller cities, and people don't want to you know live in 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 larger cities. So there is a great opportunity here to do things
0: differently. On that note, I think it is. Uh, thank you very much, Kiran.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure and privilege. I really enjoyed this conversation.